0: So you don't mind
1: if I smoke? Oh my God. <laughs> if you do smoke, yeah. I would honestly I'd be me? into it. <laughs> Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and surviving the entertainment industry for over 40 years. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we cannot get off of our minds. And today you've got me, Daisy Rosario, Senior Supervising Producer of Audio here at Slate. And today I'm talking to character actress extraordinaire, Caroline Aaron. Like almost all incredible character actors, Caroline Aaron has a name that you might not recognize, but a face that you'll remember from many movies and television shows, including Edward Scissorhands, Sleepless in Seattle, 21 Jump Street, the movie, Sex in the City, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And of course, she's most recently been in the spotlight for her role in Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The show follows the story of Midge Maisel, a Jewish wife and mother in 1950s New York City, who discovers she has a real talent as a stand-up comedian. Erin plays Shirley Maisel, the mother-in-law of the title character. In this scene, she explains her very special accounting system for the family business.
0: This column is the money we have. This column is the money we will have as soon as these people from this column or that column pay us. Unless it has a bagel stamp, which means it's still being negotiated, but we started the work anyway in case it works out. Three flags, that means the check cleared. Two flowers, that means a half and half. A half and half? Half check, half cash, or half cash, half services, or half something and have something else. You have Kaufman and Hard write this bit? Uh, can I just ask you, uh, there is a Sonny spelled with a U and a Sonny with an O and another with an IE. Is that the same Sonny? Of course it's the same Sonny. It's Sonny. Sonny from Queens. Pop, you need an accountant. What are you talking about, accountant? This is a foolproof system that I invented myself, completely secure. Only I can understand it.
1: Today, I'll be talking to Caroline Aaron about her over 40 year career, how she was able to build a personal life while working in a wildly unstable industry and what it was like working with so many incredible talents, including people like Nora Ephron. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into my conversation with Caroline Aaron. We are back. And before I jump in, I wanted to give you a heads up that you may notice some background noises here and there. We had this conversation via video chat. Now, let's dive in. Caroline, Aaron, welcome to the waves. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you. In the intro, I explained to our listeners that they know you from so many things. How did you get started in acting?
0: Well, you know, my mother would say that it was summer camp, and that she really regrets ever sending me there. But we had a choice between going on a mountain climbing trip or being in the bunk show. So being, being very committed to sitting down. I said, I'll pick the bunk show. And they were pretty elaborate. I mean, it was something I always loved doing. I think, you know, when I really think about it, um, my father died when I was very young. My mother was a 38 year old widow with three children, eight and under. And um, I think that making her laugh was the greatest thing that ever happened in my childhood. And the minute I found out how much power there was in entertaining people and how healing it can be, it became something that was my life's pursuit.
1: I want to talk a little bit about what it is like to just be a character actor in general. The day-to-day reality of being an actor is essentially being a freelancer.
0: That's right. It's like I said to my daughter who graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design a couple of years ago. And she is a textile artist and she applied for some job and she didn't get it. And she called me and, you know, she was very sad and stuff like that. And I said to her, you know, if you want to live a creative life, you have to make friends with uncertainty. And it is very, it does wear on you. You know, when I was in LA, I went, I would, there would be, days, weeks, months where I'd go, I just want to know where my parking place is and have my name on it. And that's the place I'm going to go every day. It doesn't work like that. And I said, uncertainty is not right for everyone. And we have delivered such an uncertain world to the next generation in so many ways to add the uncertainty of a passion to this uncertainty around them with you know, climate change and school shootings and things that we certainly were not part of my narrative or part of my childhood in that sense. And I understand it is a really, it's a it's a hard thing to do. Being a character actor, being an all actors are character actors, if they're good, is that you play lots of different characters. And, you know, I had, I was lucky when I was in school, I had a, a professor that said, you know, you have to figure out for yourself The pain versus pleasure principle, because you have to really love it when you're doing it because there's so much time that's spent not doing it, not doing the thing that you love. It's not like being a painter or an author in a sense, which means that you create by yourself, you know, acting is a team sport and you're always looking for a team that will have you no matter where you are in your career.
1: Yeah, gosh, that's so true. So I am wondering because you have this, you know, over 40 years of experience at this point of essentially being a freelancer. And how has that changed over the decades? I guess part of me wonders that one because we have so many women on the show who talk about balancing, you know, their work and their career in general. So to for you to build a life, obviously, you've mentioned your your daughters, like you have a personal life that you Definitely took the time to invest in. But then also knowing that, you know, in the last many years, just the idea of freelance work and the fact that so many people have to do freelance work has become a bigger part of the conversation. So for you as someone who kind of has always been this.
0: I would say one of the big changes that I've seen since I began is that in this in the same way that let's say show business is a microcosm of the larger sense of business in the world that we live in, we have eliminated the middle class in our country, where you're either very rich or you're not, and there is no middle in between, the same thing is true in show business, is that you could be a quote-unquote working actor in the old days and build a life. I don't think you can do that anymore. You have to be quote-unquote successful. Most of the people that I started with, you know, you look at your community, I would say the majority of them have dropped out. It just gets too hard after a while because You do want to have a life. You want to have a roof over your head and food in your stomach and, and, and know that you can keep going. And for some people, it was like, they just went, okay, uncle. And it had nothing to do with how talented they were or whatever, because there was a time that if you had been in a lot of movies, as I have been, that you would get a promotion as you went along, right? So that would be normal in any other job. So she's been in this, this, and this, so we're going to pay her this, this time. So that as you went along, you could actually build up a kind of way to make a living, but you can't do that anymore. You either are being paid scale, the least they can pay you, or you're being paid $20 million, which to me is a microcosm of sort of what's happening in the country, period. But I think this elimination of the middle class for kids too, is they have to get on the work ride. We've eliminated floundering is what I'm saying. I floundered. I floundered and still managed to pay my bills. Do you know what I mean? But you, you can't do that anymore. And that sort of makes me sad.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that is where a lot of creative people find themselves is. Yes. To, you exactly. have to have that time to kind of try certain things. I think especially also if you want to pursue a, a deeply creative passion, something like what you're talking about with acting and how inconsistent it can be, then you also want to have time to kind of, you know, adjust what your idea of your version of it is you'll know you get rejected but not the level of rejection you know you're gonna have to hustle jobs but maybe not the level of how how do I get out of here to go make an
0: audition and you think you're gonna graduate that's the thing and may I just say I haven't graduated yet I'm waiting to graduate you never graduate from that struggle do you know what I mean it's like it just it's it's ongoing and you have to love the art form and the challenge that it brings to you to make it worth it you know You know, that old movie, Looking for Mr. Good Bar? You know, I thought there's got to be a version of it of looking for my shit job because I've had a bazillion of them where do I have time to go to the audition and do I have time to do this work and make, because you have to make money is really what it comes down to. And I often say to my daughter, there was a reason in the old days there was patrons of the arts. It's fairly recent where work, the idea of work was supposed to be something we enjoyed. Work was something we did in order to create a life that we enjoyed. And so now, you know, it's like Follow Your Bliss, you know, has come to bite some of us in the ass in a big way. Um, As opposed to just the idea of what is work and what does it mean for me, you know? So it's, yes, it has evolved a lot in the time that I've been doing it. When I started, there were people that only wanted to go to regional theaters and just do plays. And they could. All gone. All gone all gone.
1: Alrighty, we're going to take a quick break here. But if you want to hear more from Caroline and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about what it's like to work with strong women like Nora Ephron and Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Daisy Rosario, and I'm here with Caroline Aaron, a prolific character actress whom you might remember as Dr. Marsha Fieldstone in the classic Sleepless in Seattle. Aaron was the radio therapist that got Tom Hanks talking about how much he missed his deceased wife.
0: Who is this? Dr. Marsha Fieldstone of Network America, and you are on the air. You called the radio station? Sam. Sam. Sam, are you with me? Yeah. Yes. Your son feels that since your wife's death, you've been very, very unhappy. And he's genuinely worried about you. Oh, hey, get out here. Get out here. Come on now. I'm not going to go through this alone. I think it's very hard for him to talk to you about all this. And I thought maybe you and I could talk. It would make Jonah feel a little better.
1: Caroline, I want to continue what we were talking about in terms of, like, how acting is a freelancer's life, how the middle class has basically just been demolished across the board and how that plays into it. Part of why I wanted to talk to you about being a character actor is because I'm sure that you have the experience in the world of just like being out there and everybody's like, you're so familiar. But in terms of when people talk about those stories, I've, I tend to hear it more about men. It's already quite hard. I think in a lot of movies, it's been wonderful to see this shift you know, some, and there were always a handful of people that were great about it. But it's not like the women parts in movies are always written that robustly to begin with, let alone when you're not the lead.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. We have a long way to go. I think one of the reasons, you know, when people ask, why is the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel so successful? There are countless reasons that I could name. But in terms of our conversation, women's stories are still untold. They are still untold every once in a while, yes. But for the most part, you know, no. There's a documentary on Netflix called Tea with the Dames. And it is a conversation with Maggie Smith, Judy Dench, Joan Plowright, and Eileen Atkins about their acting careers. And you should really check it out. It is so satisfying. And they first start talking about Cleopatra. They'd all played Cleopatra. And they're all classically trained. So, And they show clips of them doing, you know, all the Shakespeare's and stuff. And Joan Plowright said Shakespeare didn't write any good roles for women except Cleopatra. It's the one character in Shakespeare where the woman is the center of the story. And I was thinking about it and I thought there's no female Lears, there's no female Hamlets, and that's supposed to be, you know, our greatest writer and the biggest challenge for actors is attacking, you know, the classics and trying to rise up to that level. But I don't know what it's going to take. I'm so glad Maisel's a hit. Every time there's a a movie or a television show that is a woman's story, I just pray that it is successful because we know that the bottom line is they won't tell women's stories if they don't make money. And so I think that they will. I believe that. I believe that women's stories are really compelling and that they're not just for women. They're for people, just like men's stories are. I just don't think we're used to them. We're not used to looking at a, a woman's story and, and being satisfied by it. It feels like an outlier every time they go. And it's about a woman. And you go, wow, that seems so special. It's like even you asking me, how do you balance a life of freelance work and have a family and raise children and on and on and on? And I thought, you know, it, it, that would be a very interesting story about watching somebody's journey of trying to to balance those things. I mean, I will say I could not have done what I've done if I didn't have an incredible husband. You know, we need feminist men to make it possible for women to be feminists. The way I ended up in Los Angeles, I was in New York and I did a play by the great Wendy Wasserstein called The Sisters Rosenzweig. And I did it on tour and then ended up in LA in a sit down for three months playing the title role. And I had a, Four-year-old baby at home that my husband took care of, or I could not have done that. You need a team in order to pull it off, and there are so many women that are doing this by themselves, and I can't even imagine.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess for me that's a big part of it, and I also I'm curious. Pre-pandemic, just a random time, like how did you balance out like a year of your life? Let's say not when your kids were super tiny, but you still had the kids at home; they weren't older, like. Shows run for a little bit of time, maybe you did some theater. Is there some way that you could, I guess describe like what a year might have looked like, how you, how you worked that out?
0: You don't work it out. You don't ask permission. you just ask for forgiveness, and you have to just be comfortable with what you miss, because you literally cannot be in two places at once. When an opportunity comes, you know you have to balance that against where am I needed and for what? and can somebody else do what I do? For you know my home life, um, so I can say yes to this job or that job. One of the ways that I balanced it is I just included them in everything I was doing. They came with me a lot. That is one way that you can do it. Once they were school age and in school and had their own lives, you know you want to be at all of the games and you want to be at all of the shows, and you're not going to be. That's just what it's going to come down to. There's a very heavy dose of guilt in there, you know, you feel enormously guilty. A lot of the times when you miss X, Y, or Z, I just am counting on the fact in the big picture that when they say that, and I kind of believe this, that happy people make good parents. And I think that's really important. I I think that to fulfill yourself means you have so much more to bring to the table as a parent for your children. And if they can see you, you know, being aspirational in a way, and it it gives them permission to do the same thing. And listen, what was very interesting is my children are six years apart. When my son was in elementary school, all the mothers worked. I wasn't the only one. And when my daughter was in elementary school, none of the moms worked. I mean, it was just, it had sort of shifted and changed. And then when they all graduated from high school, you know, when we went all the way through together, I saw a lot of these women sort of lost because, you know, it's hard to live without purpose. And, you know, there is no greater purpose that you can feel than having than raising your children. But it's so temporary. It's such a temporary thing. And so you have to keep yourself as part of the bigger picture of your life.
1: Yeah. You know, your kids were already out. Your career was already established as you know, like you've been doing this kind of work a long time, but it still took away a significant portion of work. How how did you manage that? What was that like for you?
0: I didn't like it when I had to choose. I really didn't like it, I have to say. And as I think you, you know, it takes a village. You have to make sure you have a very good village around you if you're going to try and do both. Because otherwise I think that women will just run themselves into the ground. And you and you know, some women don't have a choice where they are working you know regular jobs 40 50 hours a week in order to provide for their families and they miss a lot a lot a lot i didn't have that situation in particular but there were times when i just had to be around and i had to just sort of like you know book myself out and just say i'm just not available right now because this is what's going on i think that's a learning curve too for all of us all throughout life is how do you rank the demands on your time. My son got married three years ago, right before the pandemic, and I was shooting The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and we were going over, and uh, because the season wasn't, we had like one more episode, and my husband kept saying to me, "Well, you have to tell them that you can't be there. You just can't be there." And I went, "Well, I can't tell them that." And he went, "Well, they can't change the wedding. I mean, those were two immovable obligations in my life: was to be at my son's wedding, obviously, and you know, I was under contract to this wonderful job that I didn't in any way want to disrupt by saying, you know, you have to wrap me up by such such a date. I mean, when you're part of an ensemble, I don't feel comfortable making my narrative the only narrative. That's just not how I am. So it was just like holding my breath, going, "How did today's shooting go? We're getting there. I have two more days. Will it be before the wedding? Do you know what I mean?" And I just figured, I'll just you know, back up until I hear glass, I went, okay, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I'll just get there. It'll work out. You just keep saying to yourself, it'll work out. It's scary when you have those kinds of conflicts.
1: I will say I've found in my conversations with the character actors I've been lucky enough to have conversations with. It's like, there is always more of that awareness because uh, you guys are also super aware that essentially like everyone on set is a freelancer, you know, like people don't realize that about crew people either. And so, I think because you guys work across such a range of productions that becomes very obvious and top of mind for you.
0: In terms of what I do, obviously, it attracts a great deal of narcissism in terms of people. I've been really lucky with the people that I've gotten to work with, um, that I have not had a lot of that. Um, and, And show business is very hierarchical in the way that it's structured. Do you know what I mean? And I don't like that part of it. And I'm always trying to, um, say, you know, when you and I are doing a scene together, it doesn't matter that you're a movie star and I'm not, we're throwing the ball back and forth for the audience. And so we have to be on a level playing field. Many years ago, I was doing a movie and all the extras because of the scene were way into their eighties and they had them on folding chairs outside in the sun, you know? And I was like, this is not okay. This is just because they're the extras, as opposed to the brand names, should not determine um, how they're treated. What should determine how they're treated is what they need in order to be comfortable. Now, you know, that's not going to happen unless people like me speak up on a set.
1: I've just enjoyed speaking with you so much, Caroline. Thank you so much for talking to me.
0: I really enjoyed it too. Absolutely.
1: That is our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. I am senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. I'm here with Caroline Arendt. Caroline, you have gotten to work with an incredible amount of talent. I mean, just incredible directors, incredible actors. You are in... Movies that I love that are comfort food. You are in so many things. But since it is the waves, I did want to focus on two specific people that you have worked with because you have worked with two deeply prolific women who I would argue, you know, their work is instantaneously clear when it is them. And, you know, the first obvious one is, of course, Nora Ephron. Uh, who we miss. But also right now, in your work on Ms. Maisel, you are working with Amy Sherman Palladino, who very much has a voice of her own. And, you know, just given everything we've talked about, I would love to, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit about what your experience has been working with, you know, such incredible creative forces who are women and who center women and what they do.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think that Amy loves Nora. We are so lucky. I mean, I feel so lucky that I have been part of their voices in some way. And I will tell you, I'm not like either one of them. And they are so brave. They are so brave. I'll give you two examples. I was doing um, a play that Nora wrote called Love Lost when I wore in Los Angeles. And she was so angry all the time at the way that they were promoting it, advertising it. I mean, she was just so demanding that everybody step up and and get it together you know i would just see her this little tiny beautiful she was so little just physically little it's like she didn't know that women shouldn't have power and if you look at her whole history she was the only woman you know working in the new york post and things like that and amy very much the same way i think she told us after the first season and you know sort of the word came down you know it doesn't have to be so jewish we love the characters. And Amy said at the beginning of the second season, so you know what I'm going to do? It's going to be twice as Jewy as it's ever been, right. which I love <laughs> so much. She was like, she was having none of that. You know what I mean? And I always go, wow. I told Amy recently that I feel like, you know, she brought Dorothy Parker back to our roundtables. All of Dorothy Parker's um, royalties or whenever you want to use any of our material or anything all goes to the NAACP which is such an interesting fact about somebody and what they cared about, and Amy is the same way. She she said about this show that one of the things that she was absolutely committed to was, she said, I want the main romance of this story to be two women who are there for each other and who support each other's careers. Because she said, you see women all the time on television and in films, and they're not very good to each other. And she's sort of right. And it's not true in life. That's the thing that's so funny. Women to each other as adults are the foundation of our support systems that we could not live without. And yet on screen, those friendships and those people that we rely on to let us keep going, even when it seems impossible, um, are not represented. So the Susie Midge relationship has been very consequential to Amy and the story she wanted to tell as a woman in Hollywood. She didn't have women help her. And women in Hollywood traditionally do not help other women. They don't bring other women along and say, I was you, and now I want you to grow into me. They don't do that. They turn their backs on women.
1: That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash The Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Plus.